ask for your forgiveness. We pray that people would repent, that there would be a revival, that uh, during this time of transition, um, you would put a hedge of protection around those in Washington and our new president. We ask that your will and your way would be done. And um, we do thank you for for um, for all you're going to accomplish here this morning in this study. We pray that your spirit would teach us, convict us, and, and show us by example through Daniel's prayer how to pray more effectively because we know that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man or woman availeth much, and his prayer sure did availeth much, and we want to learn from that. So, Father, we ask for healing for our nation. We pray for your will to be done here this morning in the next hour. And we ask these things in the blessed name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. Daniel's super powerful prayer, which actually the whole prayer is in verses 1 to 19, is going to be the subject of the next several lessons. Well, today's and at least next time's. And it is a prayer that was prompted by a prophecy concerning 70 years. Daniel fell to his knees because he read about a prophecy that had to do with 70 years. Now, God's answer to that prayer was a prophecy concerning 70 weeks of years. Interesting, right? Now, who knows the name of that prophecy that was given to Daniel in answer to his prayer in Daniel chapter 9 verses 24 to 27. It's called the great 70 weeks prophecy. Have you ever studied it before? How many of you have never studied the great 70 weeks prophecy? You are going to be in store for a real treat. This is the greatest prophecy in the word of God. It is the most specific. It's the most far reaching. It's the most amazing You're in for a treat. I'm so excited to finally be in chapter 9. Yes. All right. So he he was prompted to pray because of a prophecy concerning 70 years. The answer God gave him was a new prophecy concerning 70 weeks of years. In effect now, Daniel's prayer was for the restoration of his people back to their land. Where are his people? Where is he right now in our study? In Babylon, right. They're captives in Babylon. So he he falls on his knees to pray that they would be restored physically to their land. Well, God's answer goes to an even higher level. His answer goes to a higher level because it is a prophecy that concerns the ultimate spiritual restoration of Israel in her land. Now, she's back in her land today, isn't she? But has she been spiritually restored yet? Not even to this day. So this prophecy takes us all the way to the end when Israel finally acknowledges Jesus as her Savior. And that doesn't happen until the second coming. But in this great 70 weeks prophecy, we actually have a prophecy concerning the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. So, God took that answer to a higher level. And almost every conservative Bible commentator or expositor of God's word that I use for this study, almost every single one of them has commented on the fact that Daniel chapter 9 is either the single greatest chapter on prayer and prophecy or one of the greatest chapters in the Bible on prayer and prophecy that there is. 
without exception. They all, and of course, these are futuristic interpreting expositors. I don't use historicists and futurists. You know, I always, I'm a futurist. I believe that um, a lot of the eschatological prophecies have not been fulfilled yet. You know, we studied that before. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go back to the beginning. I think of this year we discussed that. I'm not a historicist. I'm not a preterist. I'm a futurist. For example, the 19th century prophecy scholar Sir Edward Denny refers to chapter 9 as the backbone of prophecy. It is. It is the backbone of prophecy. I have read so many people that don't understand the 70 weeks prophecy and therefore they get the tribulation all mixed up. You've got to understand this prophecy. It's the backbone for all end times prophecy. And you get the the timing of the rapture off and all kinds of things. It is indeed, as he said, the backbone for all prophecy. Um, Harry Ironside, Dr. Harry Ironside, remember him? Some of you know, are familiar with him. Um, He said that it contains the greatest of all time prophecies. There you go. And I agree. Dr. Lehman Strauss commented, quote, it is among the most searching and satisfying ever to come to my own heart, end of quote. And I agree with him 100%. When I first studied this, I was just wowed. I just couldn't get over it. Wow, wow, wow. I mean, it predicts to the very day when the true Messiah would present himself to Israel. And you know what that day turned out to be when you do the calculation? Palm Sunday. When a guy named Jesus of Nazareth rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and everybody was waving their palm branches, singing Hosanna to the king, that very day is predicted in this prophecy. Amazing, amazing. Well, so far we have learned that while serving the arrogant King Belshazzar, you know, practically unknown and unrecognized, um, because when Daniel goes before him, the night of the finger writing on the wall, Belshazzar doesn't even know who he is. So Daniel's serving this arrogant king who doesn't even appreciate him. But while serving him, he had received two God-given visions. The first one, which was in chapter 7, remember the four beasts that arose out of the stirred-up great sea? That first one pierced his heart, and it troubled his mind. The second one, which we have been looking at for a while in chapter 8, which had to do with a ram and a he-goat and a little horn, etc., um, that one, remember, it caused him to faint. He passed out twice, didn't he? And then it left him physically ill for several days. Well, there is no reaction provided by Daniel himself concerning his next God-sent revelation, the one we read about in chapter 9, the great 70 weeks prophecy. Um, He doesn't tell us his reaction to it, but we can easily speculate that he was probably, again, puzzled, but also wide-eyed with wonder. I'm sure he just thought, wow, this thing is awesome. But what we don't need to speculate about is our own individual reaction to this next chapter. And if yours is going to be anything like mine, I think by the time we're finished, you're going to find that this was one of the most convicting chapters you've ever studied. Convicting because of the prayer, Daniel's prayer, as well as one of the most convincing chapters you have ever studied. Convincing because... Once you understand this prophecy, 
there's no way you can doubt that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior, the Lord, the one and only Savior, the one and only mediator, the promised seed of the woman, you know, everything he is called in Scripture, the Son of God. No doubt about it. So it's a convicting chapter, and it's a convincing chapter. It's also easily divided, which made it nice for me to form an outline. It's, it consists of two parts. There's the prayer, and then there's the answer to the prayer. And I've named those two divisions an old prophecy prompts prayer. An old prophecy that Daniel was studying, an old prophecy, and it prompted him to pray. That's the first section. That's the prayer. It's verses basically 1 to 19. The second part of our outline for this chapter is a prayer prompts a new prophecy. So that was fun. (laughs) An old prophecy prompts prayer and a prayer prompts a new prophecy. And that will be verses 20 to 27. And the sequence of that is noteworthy. Before the important words of the new prophecy were revealed... Daniel had been engaged in some very significant spiritual activities. For one, he had been meticulously searching the scriptures. He had been studying the word of God. And in response to what he found in the word of God, he set his focus on God. You can see that in verse 3. He set his face unto the Lord God, and he humbled himself before his creator, He uh, fasted. He dressed himself in rough sackcloth, like burlap, burlap. And then he put ashes on his head to show his grief for his sin and for his nation's sins. And then he fell to his knees with a prayer that was fully aligned with the will of God. You know, even the prophets, and Daniel was a prophet, Jesus called him a prophet, so he was a prophet. Even the prophets, Peter said, uh, he called them holy men of God. Even they had to study the scriptures. You know, whatever scrolls of the scripture they had at their particular time in history. They didn't have the whole thing like we do. We're so blessed. But whatever they had, whenever they were living, they would study the scripture. So if they had to study the scripture, what does that say for us? We're not prophets, really, Um, they had to study the scripture to find out how to align their prayers with the will of God. They didn't just passively sit around watching Super Bowl games or, oh, that was an exciting game, wasn't it? (laughs) Um, I didn't watch it, but I heard about it. Um, They didn't sit around knitting or whatever, you know, just waiting for the next revelation to come to them from God. Like Daniel, they spent time, they spent time searching the scriptures. They sought wisdom. They prayed for wisdom to understand the scriptures uh, so that they could learn from the past the will of God for the present and for the future. And also like Daniel, what else did they do besides study the scripture? They spent time in prayer. They spent time praying in accordance with the known will of God. That's important because our prayers just bounce off the ceiling if they're not in line with the will of God. Where do we learn the will of God? From the word of God. Now, interestingly, there are three very significant chapters in the Old Testament on prayer. 
And this is what's interesting. They all are in chapter nines. <laughs> Makes it maybe maybe that's why you know. Well, the chapters aren't God inspired. You know that Daniel didn't sit down and start writing, and then he said chapter eight, chapter nine. The chapters and the and the verses were just put in for convenience, so I could say open up to chapter. Otherwise, it'd be really confusing, wouldn't it? But they're not God-inspired, but nonetheless, it is interesting that these three very important chapters on prayer are all in chapter 9. We have Daniel chapter 9, we have Nehemiah chapter 9, and Ezra chapter 9. And um, each one of those, and I think Daniel's prayer probably inspired the other two men, because Daniel came first, then Nehemiah, and then Ezra, and I think they had Daniel's scroll, and they read through his prayer, and they, because if you compare those three prayers, they're very much similar. There's a lot of similarity in the pattern and the various elements of the prayers, and they're uh, well worth studying. Um, but what each one of those has is you, you have a godly men. First of all, uh, they have a burden to intercede on behalf of the people of God, which at that time was Israel, their own people. And um, they wanted to intercede based on their knowledge of the word of God. First of all, they'd open up the word of God, they'd study, and then they'd get burdened to intercede based on the word of God. And if we were to study the pattern, and if we were to study the elements of these three prayers, I think we would learn more about praying effectively than if we went up to the carpenter shop and bought a stack of books that high on how to pray. These, I mean, I wish we had a time to do that. But if you do, I think one of your homework questions is to look through all three of them and see how, how similar they are and um, how they all begin with great confession of sin. That's where I've been convicted. We need to confess our sins more. But I think that the best way, and I don't just think it, I know it, the best way to learn to pray is to spend time with godly men and women and listen intently to their prayers. I know um, when I was first in Bible study fellowship in Fayetteville, I was the youngest one asked to be a leader. I was just a brand new baby Christian, couldn't believe they even asked me to be a leader. And I would be in this room full of all these older godly women. We'd get on our knees in a circle and they'd pray for an hour. And I learned more about praying from those women than anything ever in my whole life. And they, and they followed basically this pattern, confession, praise of God. And I mean, the last thing of all was petitions. But that's how we learn to pray. And at his own invitation, Daniel is allowing us to eavesdrop on his prayer, his communion with God. So that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to eavesdrop on the godly Daniel as he prays an effectual, fervent prayer that did avail much because it brought Gabriel from heaven with the great 70 weeks prophecy. So let's look, first of all, at an old prophecy prompts prayer and the prayer preliminaries, which began with Daniel telling us the setting. So let's look at verses 1 to 3. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the seed of the Medes, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year, for that's the setting, now he tells us what he was doing in that first year of the reign of Darius. He says, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books or scrolls the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. 
We'll talk about that. If you don't understand what he's saying there, we'll explain that. And then verse 3, And I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Okay, the first thing Daniel tells us is the setting for this uh, third directly given divine revelation that he gets, okay? I mean, he got others, but they weren't direct. They came through dreams that were given to Nebuchadnezzar. This is his third directly given revelation. And by the way, if you look at verse 23, it again comes in a vision form. So I don't know how that works, but the very last word of uh, verse 23 is a vision. So again, it's a vision. But he tells us that it was the first year of the reign of Darius, who was the son of Ahasuerus. It's not the same Ahasuerus that we read about in the book of Esther. That would be later on in history. Um, But this Darius the Mede is none other than General Ugbaru, remember, the fella on the night of the handwriting on the wall who marched into Babylon on the dried up Euphrates riverbed and conquered the city. And killed Belshazzar. That's him. <clears throat> so now we've passed from the head of gold down to the silver arms and breast of the Medo-Persian Empire. And Cyrus is the emperor of the whole Medo-Persian Empire. He places <clears throat> Ugbaru, or Darius, who's a Mede, as king of Babylon over the realm of the Chaldeans. And remember, who did Darius place as his right-hand man, Daniel. So Daniel's really third in charge now. Um, Well, what all that means is that this is now 12 years after the ram and he-goat vision that we were talking about in chapter 8. We're going back in time. You know, remember I said the sequence of the book of Daniel is all over the place. So now we're back, uh, actually... Uh, We're ahead in time, 12 years from where we were in chapter 8. Daniel is now the prime minister of a brand new realm. Well, the whole realm of the Chaldees. So what this tells us, interestingly, and this kind of, I had never thought about this before, but Daniel 9 actually took place during the very same time frame as Daniel chapter 6. What happened in Daniel chapter 6, ladies? That's the lion's den chapter. Darius the Mede only reigned for one year. Remember, he was a 62-year-old man. He didn't live very long. So that's why Daniel only mentions the first year of his reign. Well, Daniel chapter 9 and Daniel chapter 6 both took place in the first year of this man's reign. Which is interesting because, remember when he was set up over those 120 princes and then there were three presidents and Darius made Daniel the first of the three presidents? All his co-rulers were jealous of him, weren't they? You're making a Jewish captive, putting him in authority over us. And so based on his faithful prayer life, which they knew they could count on, Come hell or high water, they knew Daniel was going to pray three times a day. Based on their knowledge of his prayer life, they manipulated things so that he eventually got thrown into a den of lions. So it's interesting because now we kind of have an idea what the guy was praying in chapter 9. Now whether this episode here 
um, occurred before the lion's den episode or after, I don't know, but it is interesting that both occurred in the same year. So let's move on to the prophetic scrolls. Let's see what he was doing this first year. Because there was a new realm that had just taken over both the city of Babylon and the entire Babylonian kingdom, the subjects of this new king and his new government, all the people were a bit nervous. There's a new king in town, a new government. Although many of them were actually overjoyed that the young arrogant Belshazzar was gone from the throne. He wasn't they didn't he was not very popular with the people. So they're glad he's gone, but there's also an uneasiness in the atmosphere about this older man who has come in and the changes that his administration would make. Sound familiar, ladies? I can see your little light bulbs going off. It was a time of transition. No matter what book of the Bible you study, it's always so appropriate for where we are. Uh, Isn't it amazing? Um, It was a time of transition. It was a time of uncertainty. And probably not a little confusion as well. I don't know if they were having riots and protests or whatever, but there was a lot of transition going on, and the people were wondering how this change in the government is going to directly affect their own lives. Uh, That would be foremost on everyone's mind. So we might want to know, you know, what should we be doing? We're living in similar times with the change, you know, in government and transition, and there's a lot of changes being made every day. So for our personal edification, we want to look at Daniel, don't we? Because he is our model of spiritual exceptionalism. We want to see what was he doing during this time of transition. Well, I can tell you right now, he didn't change a bit. He just kept on keeping on doing what he had always done, serving his heavenly king. didn't matter to him who the earthly king was, his foremost Priority in life was to serve his heavenly king. So we find out what he did in this time of transition. He tells us himself in verse 2. He occupied himself with the scriptures, the books of scripture. He went through the word of God, whatever books he had available at that time. He went through them with a fine tooth comb. Particularly, he says, the writings of Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah had prophesied to the southern kingdom of Judah because the northern kingdom had already been taken off into, you know, wherever. Oops. So Jeremiah was a prophet to Judah, the southern kingdom, and he was a prophet in the years that immediately preceded the captivity. And poor guy was called the weeping prophet. He wrote the book of Lamentations. Why was he called a weeping prophet? Because no matter how many times he repeated warnings to the people, from the kings, the priests, you know, the spiritual leaders, down to the common people, warned them over and over again, God's warning, you know, Nebuchadnezzar's coming, you're going to be taken captive if you don't repent of your sins and turn back to me, put away your idols. You know, they didn't like that message. They'd rather listen to their false prophets. And so poor guy preached for years and years and years and nobody ever listened. No wonder he cried a lot be frustrating if I came here every Tuesday and there was nobody sitting in front of me 
<laughs> and I just preached my little heart out and nobody ever came. I think I'd cry a lot too. Well, I think I'd quit. <laughs> but he didn't quit. Um, but finally, when what he had warned actually did happen, and Nebuchadnezzar came and took the Jews into captivity, there was a group of Jews who rebelled against uh, Nebuchadnezzar, and against his will, they grabbed Jeremiah and took him to Egypt. He didn't want to go. He wanted to stay put in either Israel or go with the other people to Babylon, but they took him against his will, and he was apparently, I don't know for 100% sure, but that's apparently where he died and is buried somewhere in Egypt in an unknown grave. But his God-inspired words, which are part of the eternal word of God, made their way across the many miles to Babylon. And eventually a copy was in the hands of Daniel. And Daniel is sitting there studying the writings of the prophet Jeremiah. And in particular, he probably paid attention to two verses in Jeremiah. You don't have to look at them now. They'll be in your notes, but I'll tell you basically what they say. One is Jeremiah 25:11, where God said that the whole land would be in desolation and, and the people would serve the king of Babylon 70 years. 70 years. That's what Jeremiah said. And this is all before it ever happened. Then Jeremiah 29.10, the Lord says through his prophet that after 70 years were accomplished in Babylon, he would visit his people and he would cause them to return to their land. So how many years were the Jews to be in captivity in Babylon? Do you think God meant 70 when he said 70? Yes, he did. He meant exactly 70 years. Now, these passages and others made it very clear to Daniel that the Jewish captivity would indeed be for 70 years. He had been a young teenager, 14, 15 years old probably, when he had been abducted from his home in Judah and taken to Babylon. That was the year 605. BC. Now it is the year 539, 538, because it's the first year of the reign of Darius the king. So based on God's word, Daniel knows that he's been in Babylon, depending on his age and everything, he's been there about 68 years. He's been in Babylon about 68 years. God said it would be how many years? So he knows from the word of God that the end is near. There had been three deportations to Babylon. There was the one that he went in and all the other noble sons, um, like Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, and a group of them, that were taken in 605 B.C. Then there was another exile of Jews that Nebuchadnezzar came back a second time, and, and that second group he took Ezekiel and a lot of other people. And then the third time he came over was in 586. So there was 605, 597, 586. Um, And in 586, Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple. First time he took vessels from it, you know. Each time he'd take a little bit more. But the third time he destroyed Solomon's beautiful temple. But Daniel likely assumed, as he's reading 70 years, he's likely assuming that the 70 years began to tick off with that first deportation 
in 605, of which he was part. Now, years later, when the first returnees under Zerubbabel went back um, to Jerusalem after Cyrus signed a decree freeing them that they could return, and that first group went back and uh, set up an altar, that was the year 535 B.C., which was, if you start with 605, the first exile, and you subtract 535, that's how many years? Very good, math student. (laughs) That's 70 years after the beginning of the captivity. But that's just one 70 time frame thing, from the first exile to to the return and the building of the altar. Not the temple, but they built, you know, a temporary altar. There's another time frame that involves 70 years, and it has to do with the temple. Uh, the temple was destroyed in 580, what did I tell you, 586 B.C., the third time Nebuchadnezzar went over, and he completely destroyed the temple. Well, um, it was restored, completely, completely restored, not just an altar, but it took them 20 years to restore it. It was restored in 516 B.C. So again, if you take 586 when the temple was destroyed and you subtract 516 when it was completed, this was known as Zerubbabel's temple. It wasn't nearly as magnificent as Solomon's had been. But how many is that, Terry? 70 again. So he's got two groups of 70 going on. Isn't that interesting? I had never realized that before either. Um, And God, this is also interesting because when, when the first group went over from Babylon back to Judah with Zerubbabel, it was actually the year 536 B.C. But God providentially hindered them from completing and rebuilding the temple until 20 more years had passed in time so that it would actually be 70 years without a temple. Fascinating, isn't it? Mm. Well, why did God specify 70 years for the captivity? Exactly, because they had neglected to obey God's ordinance about the Sabbath year of land rest. Through Moses, God had instructed the people in the whole nation, you know, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom at that time, there was no division. But he had instructed Israel to refrain from agriculture um, every seventh year so as to let the land regain its fertility. And he promised a bumper crop on the sixth year that would carry them through, just like manna on the sixth day would be enough to carry them through the Sabbath day to the the day after. Well, not only that, um, they had ignored that Sabbath year of land rest, but they had also ignored the year of Jubilee. You see, every 50th year, the land was also to rest, according to Leviticus 25 and God's instructions. So God warned his people that ignoring these laws... Um, would result in their physical removal from the land. He spelled it out as clear as could be. 
If you don't obey the year of Sabbath rest, every seventh year, and every 50th year, the, the, um, the Jubilee, which also involved other things, like you'd have to return land that you had bought back to the original owner, they didn't like that, so they didn't do it. Would you think Americans would do that? <laughs> no. They didn't like that law, and they'd have to free any of their slaves. They didn't like that either. Uh, so they ignored these things. It's amazing. But he said, if you do... I will have to physically remove you from the land so that it gets the rest that it it needs, that it deserves. So the land deserved approximately 70 years of rest because they had been ignoring these two laws. Well, I did some calculation. I'm going to really confuse you. We do not know how long they had been neglecting these laws. The last time I can see any indication that Israel was obeying them was maybe with um, Boaz and Ruth and the land transaction thing, maybe. But we do know, and I went on a lot of Jewish websites, that the, none of the kings of either, from David on down, I mean, none of the kings obeyed either of these, including David. That's pretty sad, isn't it? None of the, they never obeyed these two rules. They just ignored them. They only obeyed what they wanted to, you know, pick and choose like a lot of people do today. Well, I'll obey this and I won't, you know, I'll just reinterpret that one. So um, let's say that it, it began when David, who was the true and rightful king anointed by God, um, when he was anointed by the prophet Samuel. Um, and I'm not just haphazardly doing this. It works mathematically. But he was anointed in the year 1025 B.C. Okay, get your little pencils out. 1025 B.C. When was the first captivity of Judah to Babylon? 605. So what's 1025 minus 605? 420. (laughs) I already did the math. I don't have a math teacher here. Do we have a math teacher? <laughs> Anybody math teacher? That was my worst subject. Were you? Oh, well, yeah, homeschool moms, you do it all, don't you? That's right. I've got a grandson who's starting algebra, and I'm going, oh, no. <laughs> I don't think I can help you anymore, David. All right, so four, that's 420 years. <clears throat> if you take 420 years and divide it by seven, because every seventh year since the anointing of David, they should have been obeying the Sabbath year, that would be <clears throat> 60 years, okay? Then if you also take 420 and divide it by uh, 49, because every 49th year, 50th year, they were to do the Jubilee land year rest thing, that would be another nine years that they owed for land rest. So 60 plus 9 is 69. But to begin the whole cycle... The whole cycle, whenever it began, would also be a year of rest. So if you add one more year, it would be 70. Either way, I don't know if that's correct, but God knows, right? And he knew 70 years. He knew when he began to count it, and he knew when it ended. And it was 70 years that they had neglected those two ordinances. Well, another reason for the captivity of Babylon is because she had Israel had flagrantly worshipped idols. You know, all kinds of idols, right? And he said, if you're, if you're going to just keep doing that, I'm going to send you to a place that's saturated with idols so you get so sick of idols, you'll never have that problem again. And they never have. After Babylon, they've never had that problem. But you have to admit, God had been very long-suffering, hadn't he? Wow. Is he very long-suffering with us, too? Yes, he is. 
I don't know. Like they say, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. (coughs) But a lesson to note in all of this is God takes very seriously obedience to his laws. He takes that seriously. And it's so simple. It is so simple. I try to stress this with my grandchildren. You will be blessed if you obey. Blessings follow obedience. But if you don't, you know, if if you do, if you hang up your clothes, if you fold your clothes and put them nicely in your drawer, and you don't have trash all over the floor every time grandma goes into your rooms, I might even take you to Walmart and get you a Shopkin or something. You know what those are? (laughs) You don't have any idea. You don't have little kids, do you? How many know what a Shopkin is? There, see, that's all the younger. Grand. (laughs) They're the silliest little things in the world that they love to play with. They're about that big and they're weird. Little toasters with faces. Cupcakes with faces. I don't know. Anyway, they love them. They trade them. But if you don't obey, you know, if your room is a mess, you're not going to be blessed. The curse is going to fall on you. (laughs) The curse of grandma. But it is simple. I mean, God said, obey, and I'll bless you, disobey, and I will have to chasten you. Um, they could have saved themselves a whole lot of hardship, couldn't they? A whole, All of us, we could save ourselves a lot of hardship if we would simply just obey. Um, and another lesson is, is found in the response of Daniel to what he learned through his study of the prophetic scripture. He recognized where he was on God's prophetic calendar. He understood where he was. Do we understand where we are on God's prophetic calendar? I think most of you in this room do, but how many people out there in the world do? They don't have a clue where they are. They don't even believe in God's prophetic calendar. But we're at the very end. We're in the age of Laodicea as far as the church is concerned in the book of Revelation. We're in the lukewarm Christendom stage. We're on the brink of the Lord's return for his church. We see the alignment of the nations, Russia and Iran. Things are going on. Uh, I think we know where we are. But he knew, and that's what Jesus um, told us. He, he reprimanded his people because he said you can tell what the weather's going to be when you get up in the morning, but you, don't, you can't discern the signs of the times. It's important to discern the signs of the times because then you rightly know how to pray. You can pray wacky prayers if you don't know what's going on. Um, But Daniel did. He recognized where he was on the prophetic calendar, and he prayed in accordance with that. He surely had no doubt that God would keep his word through his prophet Jeremiah and also through Isaiah. Now, what did Isaiah have to say? Interestingly, Isaiah in chapters 44 and 45 And this was some 150 years before Cyrus was even born. Isaiah, speaking for the Lord, said by name that he would be the man who would set the people free. He even called him, God predicted him, not only by name, you know, before his mom and dad knew what they were going to call him. God said, his name is Cyrus. And he is going to be my shepherd. He called him his shepherd to release his people. Why would a pagan king do that? I mean, did Pharaoh of Egypt want to set God's people free? No. 
But Cyrus did it completely on his own. He got out the little decree and signed it. Let him go. Why would a pagan king who didn't even know God, why would he do that? Well, God tells us why he did that. He said, for Jacob, my servant's sake. Jacob's name was turned to Israel. In other words, it's for my people's sake. I'm doing this. He says, I have even called thee Cyrus by name. I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. And I will direct all your ways. And you will let my captives go, not for price or reward, saith the Lord of hosts. Isn't that amazing? Who's that? Yeah, that's Isaiah 45, verses 4 and 13. Amazing. And God then said in verse 6 of that same chapter that he gave this prophecy so it would serve as a continual witness to the fact that he is the Lord and there is no other. There's no other God beside me, he said. Well, that's true. Who can tell 150 years before a man's even born what his name's going to be and what he's going to do? And that guy's going to go ahead and do it, even though he doesn't know the Lord. So, now knowing that the 70 years of captivity were close to an end, and also knowing, <laughs> can you imagine Daniel's brain taking all this in? I've been here about 68 years, you say 70 And now there is a man over the empire by the name of Cyrus, as you said. Well, that would be about 200 years earlier because Cyrus was probably about 50. You know, and here here there's this emperor named Cyrus. Uh, So Daniel's putting all this together in his mind. And what does he do? Well, he responds to what he discovers from the prophetic word of God with prayer. Because through the prophetic scripture, he learned the will of God. He also knew that it was the divinely appropriate time for him to intercede on behalf of his people. Why was it now the appropriate time for intercessory prayer? Why couldn't he have been praying for his people on, on, you know, on their behalf during all these times he's been in Babylon? Why is now the time he falls on his knees and intercedes for them? Now that the Medes and Persians are in control. Well, I'll tell you why. It's because God had expressly commanded the, uh, the Jews through Jeremiah. He actually commanded Jeremiah not to intercede on behalf of his people in their time of chastisement in Babylon, Babylonian captivity. Jeremiah was burdened for his people when he saw each one of those exiles and them being taken off. And he wanted to fall on his knees and pray for them, intercede on their behalf. And God said, no, you are not allowed to. If you can, but I won't hear you. I won't respond. Um, he even said in one passage, I think it's in Jeremiah 15:1, he says to Jeremiah that even if Moses and Samuel were uh, to intercede on behalf of their people because they were great intercessors. He said even the two of them together would be of no avail at that time. I would not even hear their prayers, Jeremiah. Why? Well, because they had continued, the people had continued to scoff and reject and ignore his message. For years and years and years, decades, hundreds of years, they ignored the messages of Isaiah and Micah and Jeremiah and others. Therefore, their exile became inevitable, irreversible, and non-negotiable. So nobody was allowed to intercede on their behalf because the discipline of Israel must be left to do its work. 
There's a lot of lessons learned in discipline, isn't there? And in chastisement. Jeremiah and others, like Daniel, were not allowed to intercede for their people during the time of the ba- of Babylon's oppression. You know what God told them to do instead? To pray for their captors. Who was Daniel praying for? And finally, the guy got saved. Nebuchadnezzar. And he did get saved. He said, God said, pray for your captors and pray for the peace of Babylon. And Babylon, under Nebuchadnezzar, did live, um, it did have a lot of years of, of peace. That's Jeremiah 29.7. But now, for the first time... Since Nebuchadnezzar had carried off that original group of Jewish captives, the time of divine judgment under the head of gold, under Babylon's rule, had ended. It says in 2 Chronicles 36.20, till the reign of the kingdom of Persia. So now Daniel understands, too, that he is freed from that command not to intercede on behalf of his people and how he could intercede on their behalf. Babylon herself had been judged. By whom? By God's shepherd, Cyrus, his servant. And there's a new government in town. So Daniel could intercede, and that's exactly what he did. He commits himself to pray humbly, fervently, reverently, wholeheartedly, and wisely, all in the known will of God. Well, another factor that was understood by Daniel was that there were many, he'd lived with his people a long time in captivity, and he understood that many of them had grown really content in Babylon. In fact, the majority of them had never known any other home but Babylon. People didn't live that long. I mean, he's this guy, Daniel is now in his early 80s. Remember when he got thrown in the lion's den? He's somewhere in his 80s. Um, not many of the Jews lived that long, so most of them had never seen Judah. And it wasn't too appealing to go back. I mean, when that decree was issued, a lot of them decided, I don't want to go back to a desolate land and a lot of hard work ahead of us to rebuild the land. And they knew that enemies had, you know, remember Sanballat and Tobias and the enemies, you know, a lot of them didn't want to go back. And so Daniel's praying too, probably, Please, I hope somebody, when the decree is signed, will go back. He was right, too, because when that decree was signed, you know how many went out of the millions? Only initially 42,000 went back with Zerubbabel. So, it's worth noting that even with the death of Belshazzar and the rise of Cyrus, of the new reign of the Medes and Persians, and Daniel's realization that the time of Israel's exile was just about over, even with all that now, you know, light bulbs in his mind. He understands all this. Yet, he does not set aside his dedication to his task, to his job. The expectation of promised freedom did not cause him to get slack in his work for the new administration. Or even to resign. Isn't it amazing? In his 80s, he could have just said, No, Darius, it's very nice of you to offer me the position of prime minister, but I've worked all my life, and i just like to enjoy a little retirement. He didn't say that, did he? <laughs> he Actually, it was at this very time that his work ethic and his extraordinary spirit and his integrity were noted 
by Darius the Mede. And that's why he was assigned that position of authority over the whole Chaldean realm. So isn't that amazing? He didn't get slack in his duty with Belshazzar, even though Belshazzar didn't appreciate him at all, didn't even know who he was, and he doesn't get slack in working for a new administration for Darius, this older man, um, even though all the other guys hate him and throw him in a lion's den. He keeps on keeping on because who is he really serving? Not his earthly king, but his heavenly king. That's a lesson in itself. I don't know what time it is, but I'm going to be in trouble. Oh, my word. And I'm only on verse 2. Oh, dear. All right. Well, yeah, I got to stay synchronized with the other study. All right. All right. So he sets his face. Look at verse three. He sets his face to the Lord God, which refers to his resolution to focus on God, to pour out his heart to him with the utmost seriousness, fervency, perseverance for the accomplishment of his prophecy concerning the restoration of his people. He's basically saying, God, you said you would do this. Now, you know, do this. He didn't send up a little casual arrow prayer. Lord, we pray for America. You know, and a nod to God, like we do so often. I'm driving down, Lord, pray for America. He was serious about this. I mean, he, he started by fasting in advance of his prayer. He fasted because his hunger would keep him reminded of his purpose. Also, the sackcloth, that rough sackcloth cloth on his skin would remind him. You know, he'd stay mentally fixed on his purpose. And he would either sit in ashes or put ashes on his head. I don't know which one, but that was the traditional Jewish method for demonstrating grief for sin. How many of you ever sat in ashes and poured them on your head, except when you were two years old, you know? Doing a grief for sin. And humility shows real humility, definitely, before God. These were appropriate ways for Daniel to humble himself before God at a time when he was going to recall and confess the sins of the nation for which he and his people were reaping the consequences. He didn't do these things to draw attention to himself like the scribes and Pharisees did. Remember, when they would fast, they'd go out in public and have ashes on their face and long, uh, you know, pale, look, I've been fasting, I haven't eaten, and they wanted everybody to say, oh, they're so pious. Daniel didn't do that. The only one he cared about showing his sincerity was his God. All right, profess sins. I'm going to race through this really fast, verses 4 to 15. <clears throat> and I, I want you to get the gist of it, and you can read the notes more carefully, but let's look at verses 4 to 15. He says, And I prayed unto the Lord my God, that's Jehovah my creator, Yahweh my Elohim, and made my confession and said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, or awesome God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him and to them that keep his commandments. In other words, you're an awesome God. You always keep your covenant and you're merciful. He says in verse 5, and notice he includes himself, even though he was one of three righteous men up to that time, the most righteous, Job, Noah, and him, according to Ezekiel. Now, he doesn't put himself on a pedestal and say, they have sinned. You know, the more godly you are, the more, I mean, the more you understand the holiness of God, the more you see how far short you fall, right? So he was such a godly man that he knew that he didn't match up to God at all. So he definitely includes himself in all this that he's confessing. He says, we have sinned and have committed iniquity and have done wickedly and have rebelled. Look at all the different names for sin, he says there. 
sinned, committed iniquity, done wickedly, rebelled, even by departing from thy precepts and from thy judgments. Neither have we hearkened unto thy servants, the prophets, which spake in thy name to our kings and our princes and our fathers and to all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongeth to thee, unto thee, but unto us confusion of faces. That means we're shamed, we're disgraced, we, we are shame-faced before you. As at this day to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to un, unto all Israel that are near and that are far off. He's, he's speaking on behalf of all the Jews, wherever they are, because those ten northern tribes have been carried off, you know, 150 years earlier or even more than that by this time. So he's praying for all the Jews that are near, that are far off, through all the countries whither thou hast driven them, because of their trespass that they have trespassed against thee. O Lord, to to us belongeth confusion of face to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against thee. To the Lord our God belong mercies and forgivenesses, though we have rebelled against him. Neither have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Yea, all Israel have transgressed thy law, even by departing, that they might not obey thy voice. Therefore, the curse, not the blessings, but the curse is poured upon us. And the oath that is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, because we have sinned against him. And he hath confirmed his words, which he spake against us and against our judges that judged us by bringing upon us a great evil, great calamity. For under the whole heaven hath not been done as hath been done upon Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this evil is come upon us, yet made we not our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquities And understand thy truth. That's a great definition of repentance. Turn from iniquities and turn to the truth. Verse 14. Therefore hath the Lord watched upon the evil and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all his works which he doeth. For we obeyed not his voice. He doesn't blame God at all for any of this. We deserved it. It's not your doing God. It's ours. Verse 15, and now, O Lord our God, thou hast brought thy people forth out of the land of Egypt. He's reminding him of a previous great and mighty deliverance. And uh, and that's because he's going to ask him for another great and mighty deliverance. Remember, God, when you brought our people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and has gotten thee renowned? I mean, that really gave you a name. As at this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. He's preparing to set the stage to say, now keep your promise and deliver us from Babylon like you did from Egypt. He did, did you notice he did not minimize his sins or the sins of his people one single bit? Uh, he didn't pull back any punches. He identifies himself with his people. He's, uh, he says we've sinned. That means we've missed the mark. He says we committed iniquity. In other words, we twisted and distorted and bent God's law, reinterpreted his law to um, act perversely because we love our sin. He says they've done wickedly. You know what that means? We've done wickedly knowingly, purposely, you know, fist in your face. We've done wickedly. Uh, we rebelled. We, div- we, re- we defied your divine authority over us. We knew what you wanted. You had it all written out. You told us. 
But we did it anyway. We rebelled. We departed from your commandments and your ordinances. In verse 6, he says, Neither have we hearkened to your servants, the prophets, which they didn't, did they? Neither the northern kingdom nor the southern kingdom. Um, Verses 7 and 8, he speaks of Israel's trespasses and sins against God and the people's confusion of faces, which literally means they were shamefaced. They were disgraced, not only before all the nations. Don't you think it was shameful that the Babylonians came in and destroyed their city, their holy city, and their holy temple, and then carried them off as captives? Isn't that pretty shameful? Isn't that pretty disgraceful? So he says, and they said, we're not only disgraced before the nations, but Daniel is saying, we're shamefaced before you, God, because of our unfaithfulness to you. Concerning this, I want to read something that Ray Pritchard wrote in a book called The Positive Power of Prayer, because he commented on, uh, <clears throat> on this shamefaced thing. He said, One, one's admittance to being covered with shame is, quote, Not a politically correct statement nowadays. After all, he says, we live in a shameless society filled with shameless people who do shameful deeds. Is that not true? I think about my grandmother seeing some of the commercials on television. Her face would have turned bright red. And now, you know, we just... mm. He says, the whole idea of shame seems to belong to another time and place. We are not ashamed of anything anymore. We don't blush because we aren't embarrassed, because we've seen it all and we've heard it all. Even in the church, some people dislike the notion of shame. That's Old Testament, they say. In the age of grace, there's no need for shame. So we are told. So we are told. But that is... Just so much theological flap doodle. <laughs> I've got to remember that one. <laughs> theological flap doodle. <laughs> he says, sin always brings shame. And sin always separates us from God. And when we sin deliberately, and when we sin repeatedly, we ought to be ashamed. If we're not, it's because we have a seared conscience. Today, we use other words. We say, I goofed, or I blew it, or we talk about making a mistake, or having a weakness, or we say, I made a boo-boo, or my bad. You hear that one? My bad. But those terms tend to define sin downward. After all, how bad can a boo-boo be? I'm trying to stress this with my grandchildren, because they'll do something, and I'll say, sorry, sorry. I said, you know what? You're not sorry at all. I can tell by the way you said it. Sorry. And on they go. (laughs) My bad. Uh, It definitely is not as bad as acting wickedly. And that what Daniel said? We have acted wickedly. He makes no excuses for their sin. Not once does he blame those dirty Babylonians or the miserable Philistines who led them into sin with their idols. None of that. No finger pointing, no blame game, no self-justification of any kind. I thought that was so good, I just had to share that with you. But we do live in a shameless society. I can't believe what people out there tell me. And I'm an older woman. You think if they're going to share that kind of stuff, they do it with the younger people, but they tell me, like, I'm not going to even be affected. And I'm just going to say, okay, that's just the norm nowadays. You live with your significant other, blah, 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 all this stuff. And they're telling me. And I still blush. I don't like it. It's sin. 
Sorry. It's acting wickedly. And Daniel didn't pull any punches about that, did he? Well, he knew that the Babylonian bondage of his people was the consequential result of their own sins. So instead of complaining, this is where it came, instead of complaining, he confessed. I am guilty because I complain about what's going on in Washington. I complain about this, and I complain about that, and I complain about the commercials, and I complain about the halftime shows, and I just complain and complain. You know what I should be doing? Confessing. If my people which are called by my name, you know, this is all the church's fault. We haven't been doing our job. We should be confessing and interceding on behalf of our nation and people that don't know any better. He understood that the curse had come upon them. It was their own fault for having disobeyed, broken God's covenant. God had not failed Israel. Israel had failed God. I hear it over and over again. God bless America. And I want to say, why should he? Why should he? No, no, no. America, it's time for you to bless God. He hasn't failed us. We have failed him. Daniel also saw their sins in great contrast to God's character. He stressed God's absolute righteousness in having punished his people. Uh, He didn't play that blame game. So anyway, what have we seen so far from Daniel's prayer? We've seen that effective intercessory prayer is always the result of Bible study. It's rooted in knowing the will of God from his promises in the word of God and from his prophecies in the word of God. Effective intercessory prayer reacts to what it's learned about God, his will. It reacts with humility And with fervency, it never blame shifts the consequences of sin onto God or onto anyone else. Remember, Adam started that little game. You know, well, God, it's that woman you gave me. So who is he really blaming for the sin? God. It's your fault, God. How many times we hear people say, well, why or how can a good God allow so many bad things to happen? You hear that? You know what they're really doing? They're blaming God, just as Adam did. People are not willing to accept the fact that the evil in this world is the result of evil deeds committed by sinful people who bring the consequences of their evil upon themselves and upon those around them. Because none of us are an island unto ourselves, right? If, if, If a family member does evil, it affects the whole family, right? If a dictator does evil, it affects the whole nation. So people just don't understand. They always want to blame God or blame somebody else. Daniel recognized this tendency to blame shift, and therefore he confessed Israel's responsibility for what she was experiencing. Verse 12, he says that Israel didn't obey, so she got exactly what God said she would get. After all, if he didn't keep his promises, why would anyone ever obey him again? If he said blessings follow obedience and cursing follows disobedience and he didn't keep that promise, no one would ever listen to him. They'd say, well, he didn't mean it. You know, he drew his line in the sand and didn't do anything about it. Um, So he's saying, you know, he's right in everything he does. And then in verse 13, there's a scathing commentary on Judah, how despite her many, many warnings, she failed to be broken and repent. Um, I want to read one more quote from Dr. John Phillips. He says this. I mean, this just is amazing. Not only did they have all the warnings of the prophets, 
but they had physical warnings as well that God sent them. Here's what Dr. Phillips said. He said, did the people repent when the Assyrians carried away the entire northern kingdom and ravaged the southern kingdom right down to Jerusalem itself? You know, when the people down in Judah watched as all the the people in the northern kingdom were carried off by those cruel Assyrians. And actually the Assyrians, God allowed them to come all the way down to the outskirts of Jerusalem before he took care of them. Um, Did the people of Judah see that physical warning and repent? Did they? No. It says, um, only until the death of godly king Hezekiah. Now, Hezekiah prevented the Assyrians by his intercessory prayer and everything. But when he died, Judah then followed Manasseh. And if you know anything about him, he was worse than any other king. But they, you know, instead of remembering Hezekiah, they immediately followed Manasseh and into worse wickedness than ever before. He says, did the people repent when another good king? See, they had a couple little periods of grace there, a couple good kings. Did they repent when King Josiah found a copy of the, of the scripture in the temple after God's word had been so completely forgotten that when he read it, he was astonished? Do you know how, I mean, they hadn't, read the, they hadn't bothered to be reading the word of God. And so somebody found a copy of the scripture in the temple and they brought it to King Josiah and he read it and he was astonished. And he said, my goodness, we haven't been obeying God at all. And so he tore down all the high places. And remember, there was a revival in Jerusalem. Did the people repent then? Yes, for a little bit. But when he died, then they went right back to their old ways again. Did the people repent when the Babylonians first appeared and encamped in battle around Jerusalem? No. Did they repent when the second Babylonian expedition appeared before Jerusalem and Jehoiakim was deposed and Zedekiah was installed as a puppet king in his place? Did the people repent then? No. Did they repent when Zedekiah was summoned to Babylon in 594 BC? Remember, he's the guy they put a hook in his mouth. and First of all, they killed his sons right in front of him. Then they blinded him and then they... Called him off with a hook to Babylon. Did the people repent then? What is the answer, do you think? No, they didn't. He said, did they repent when the Babylonians appeared in force before Jerusalem for the final siege in 587 B.C.? No. Did they repent when Jerusalem fell and was sacked in 586 B.C.? Did they repent in Babylon? No. That says it all, doesn't it? And it makes, me, it makes me think of during the tribulation when God is sending warning after warning with tr- um, uh, trumpet judgments, seal judgments, bowl judgments. And the, do the people repent? Most, I mean, they just put their fist in his face. They know who it's coming from and they still rebel. Well, in verse 14, he again confesses that God was right in bringing calamity upon Judah. She deserved it for not having obeyed his voice. Uh, Verse 15, again, he confesses her sinfulness against the very Lord God. And then he does remind, in in closing the confession part, next time he gets into the petitions, but in closing the confession part of his prayer, he does remind God about his mighty deliverance of his people from Egypt. 
because he's preparing to ask him to keep his word and do another mighty deliverance of his people from Babylon. So I got through it. (laughs) Praise the Lord. All right, Father, thank you for our time together. I know it's a lot to put on everyone, but um, I pray that we have soaked in something from this and that we have learned it's so important to to know your word so we know how to rightly align our prayers with your will. It's also important to know the signs of the times and the day and your prophetic calendar in which we live so we can claim your word and we can say things like, even so come quickly, Lord Jesus, because we know that your coming is imminent. It could be even this afternoon. Thank you for all you revealed to Daniel through your word. Thank you for all the even more knowledge you revealed to us. Help us to be convicted, to be more faithful and fervent and effectual in our prayer lives and to, um, to humbly, humbly intercede on behalf of ourselves and our nation because our nation has failed because basically the church has failed. Help there to be revival in our church, our church Uh, nationwide, worldwide, and begin with me, Father. I pray these things in your blessed name. Amen. God bless you.